0: This week, I'm thrilled to introduce a very special episode of Technically Human. In the episode, I will be speaking with three exceptional Cal Poly students whose work has helped me think more clearly about the future of ethical technology and how the next generation of technologists are thinking about the relationship between human values and tech. Aaron Jeffs, Nick Bell, and Jeff Sanueza are undergraduate students at Cal Poly, working in different majors across campus from architecture to computer science. We spent last quarter together, getting to know each other in my class on ethical technology, where we thought together about how we might envision a more ethical, more equitable future of technological production and ideation. They are here with me today to share their insights about and their vision for ethical technology as they navigate the move from student to practitioner. Erin Jess is an animal sciences major with a minor in biotechnology, and she has just concluded. Her in research alongside a graduate student at the Cal Poly Regenerative Medicine Program. Erin's research has led her to cultivate an interest in using biotechnology as a way to create new treatments for diseases. After finishing her undergraduate degree, Erin plans to attend graduate school in order to deepen her expertise in the field of biotech. Outside of academics, Erin enjoys rock climbing, playing basketball, and spending time with her family and friends. Nick Bell is a third-year computer engineering major at Cal Poly and he is the current president of the Computer Engineering Society on campus. His specific interests lie in cybersecurity, and he hopes to pursue a career as a white hat hacker, or in other words, a penetration tester, to help make people in businesses more secure online. Outside of school, he enjoys spending time with friends, playing video games, and playing guitar. Last summer, he worked as an IT intern at the application security team at Chevron, and this week, he's just started a new job at Intuit, working on their internal penetration testing team. Jeffrey Sanueza is a recent college graduate from Cal Poly with a bachelor's degree in architecture. He spends his days reading science fiction, watching new movies, applying to jobs, and 3D modeling furniture, buildings, and worlds for fun. His design experience includes structural research with an architectural engineering professor at Cal Poly and professional work with an architecture and engineering firm in Pasadena, California. His interests lie in the connection between how we view our reality and the myths and fictions we tell ourselves. He intends on continuing his design studies with this interest. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Nick. Hi, Jeff.
1: Hey, what's up? Hi.
0: Hello, hello. Nick, let's start with you. You're in your third year at Cal Poly, and you spent that time in your major as a computer engineering major. Over here, as humanists on the other side of the fence, we're curious. How do computer engineers and computer engineering professors talk about ethics? What kind of training, knowledge, and thinking about ethics happens in your neighborhood?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It's one of the main reasons I was interested in kind of taking the ethical technology class with you in the first place is um, I feel like at least for computer engineering students in particular at Cal Poly, uh, we are missing out a little bit on some of those ethics discussions. Specifically at Cal Poly, the computer science majors have a dedicated ethics class Um, that they're required to take Um, but for computer engineering majors it's just kind of tacked on into one of our existing technical classes where we have a few ethical discussions and that's about it. So I do see that the education in ethics is is a bit lacking um, in kind of that general area, but I will say that I think there's a general attitude of trying to enhance those conversations, and it's becoming more and more important for professors and the students to engage with that sort of thing.
0: Why do you think it's becoming more important?
2: I think the public perception of a lot of tech companies has become a lot less favorable in the past few years with a companies like Facebook kind of getting a lot of backlash for a lot of recent events. Um, so I think kind of the public attitude is contributing to that a lot in my peers. I see, well, there seems to be a general attitude um, towards ethics. Um, in those fears, that's kind of like, oh, it's just something that's tacked on. It's just something I have to do. I'm not, I don't really want to do this, but I'm being forced to. But I'm, I'm glad to see that in my peers, um, there's actually seems to be a lot of interest in engaging those kinds of conversations and that I think um, kind of the undergraduates that are currently going through are interested in um, kind of fixing those issues. Aaron,
0: maybe you could weigh in. Do you think that Cal Poly is doing enough to educate students on ethical technology?
1: I was actually surprised with Nick's answer, just because my experience has been kind of different. I feel like at least as far as the animal science department goes, professors do a really good job bringing the discussion of ethics into lectures. You know, obviously animal welfare and ethics is always a topic of discussion in my field, and there's a whole class you can take on this subject. In labs, for my bio and chem classes, in addition to my animal science classes, I feel like professors in general do a good job in terms of discussing ethical experimentation and how to be an ethical researcher, which is something I keep in mind, especially when I do research in a lab. You know, research ethics has, is just very, very prominent in my mind. That being said, I do wish the discussion was sometimes on a broader scale. For instance, we only talk about ethics in terms of how we're directly applying it right now, which... I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's more that I just don't feel like um, that more humanist approach to discussing ethical technology is is really there. I do agree with what Nick said that I feel like my peers are really ready to engage in tougher conversations and really willing to talk about ethics. And I, I would say at least with my peers in the more bio side of things, it's, it's something that is brought up a decent amount.
0: You know, I think that many people instinctively assume that a course on ethical technology is there for students in the sciences or the technical fields. But my hunch is that what we think of as technology is so much wider than that, and that a humanist approach to technology extends far beyond the tech industry. Jeff, I know that this is something you've thought quite a bit about, and I wonder whether you could pick up on this from the perspective of someone who's trained in architectural design and interested in world building broadly. Do you view architecture differently now that you've taken this course? How do you translate an inquiry into ethics and tech into the methods and objects of study in your major?
3: Throughout this course, it's kind of reinvigorated the importance of human values and architecture for myself. I believe there is a a unique connection between architecture and technology because um, in the design profession, we don't just enjoy using kind of traditional techniques of like construction, but we're also encouraged to use. Things like coding in developing facade systems, um, virtual reality, and augmented reality to kind of graphically represent projects to clients and communicate with uh, contractors and construction management. And even in how we build uh, some of our products, we use kind of new like 3D printing, additive, and subtractive manufacturings. And like we're kind of constantly negotiating what's happening with technology into our construction and how we kind of communicate our projects to people. But deep down, ultimately, there is this sense of a responsibility to human safety. Um, As like an architect in training, I am working towards my professional licensure. And with professional licensure comes like experience and examinations that test whether or not I can uphold these standards of human safety. Like whenever we build actual architecture projects, we have to make sure that certain things won't catch on fire, that spaces are wide enough for people maybe with disabilities to move through. And even though we're kind of negotiating technology that like that, we still have this fundamental responsibility to like human space and human values in these things. And this class kind of like brought that back up but also in an interesting way how like usually when we design spaces we use this exercise called the precedent study where we look at old buildings and analyze their successes and their failures but also like reading 1984 and brave new world we're able to look at like the central london hatchery which are kind of like the opposite ends like how badly can this go in our society and it's just kind of interesting see how those projects are really well thought out and how they connect to their world, but they're also a very scary and dystopic world.
0: Well, Jeff, you already brought up fiction. So now I have to ask you a follow-up question. You mentioned that you're interested in potentially not only architecture, but pursuing a career in film and video game design. And as a narrative scholar and somebody who teaches science fiction, this is really exciting for me because I see so many of the ideas that we've talked about in this class come together with your expertise and architectural understandings of what it means to build and design. Particularly in our inquiry into science fiction world building and the development of technological products around the concept of story. I wonder whether you could talk about how you see these things coming together. Does science fiction inform your thinking about game design or architecture? How does your training as an architect merge with an inquiry into science fiction to influence how you approach these
3: kinds of virtual worlds? When I read science fiction, it's always really amazing to me how interconnected and how well thought out the world is, whether it's kind of dystopia or utopia or kind of focused around one kind of piece of technology, the world built out around it is all very cohesive in a way. And that kind of informs my design into thinking more about how my architecture participates in a larger world and only its kind of immediate context. And I think now more than ever, we're kind of more focused on how there can be a certain universality in design and also very kind of custom made, tailored to the individual design. One kind of example that I wanted to share with you, a recent architecture Pritzker prize winner, uh, is a Chilean designer, Alejandro Oliveira, is very innovative in how he dealt with housing he, as an architect, was given a limited budget by the government to build low income housing for a certain population. And as an architect, he decided to use that money to give everyone very fundamental architectural elements. Like he gave them foundation, he gave them fire protection, he gave them a roof, and he gave them plumbing. And then he kind of let the people who lived inside these houses add on to that building and. Over time, they could build things that they personally wanted, allowing that kind of participation with like, real people, the people who are actually living there, and also you as a designer who may look at things from a top-down perspective. Aaron, over the quarter, you actually also wrote about your interest in video game ethics.
0: What, what do you think? What are the ethical concerns that we should watch out for, in your view?
1: This was an area that I actually hadn't thought too deeply about until we discussed it as a class during lecture. And we made parallels between the violence depicted in the show Westworld and the violence depicted in video games, and what this might say about our innermost desires. I personally don't think of myself as a violent person, but I do enjoy playing first-person shooter games and other fighting games. But for me, there's a major disconnect between the violence in video games and the violence in real life. And I think what made Westworld so different and so you know, thought provoking is that that line drawing this distinction becomes blurred. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think we're close enough in our video game technology to creating something like Westworld. But I think that disconnect is something that is important and something we need to keep in mind.
0: One of the works that we looked at this quarter under the lens of ethical technology was Westworld, which seemed to be somewhat of a class favorite. And in many ways, the show takes on some of the ethical concerns that have been publicly raised about video game technology, violent narratives, the possibility of those violent narratives inducing real violence, the loss of that boundary between the real and the virtual world. And it takes it to an extreme in Westworld. Nick, you've talked about Westworld as a show that stood out to you as invoking some of the most important ethical questions about technology. Why? What did Westworld bring up for you in terms of the relationship between virtual realities and how humans interact ethically in them?
2: Yeah, when, when we first started watching Westworld for the class, I was just so engaged with it, I'm already on season two. <laughs> I, I think it's a really, really interesting premise, and it kind of presents the extreme, like Aaron said, of kind of the violence in video games. What if, what if your life is a video game and how would you behave in that way? I think one of the things that the the characters in Westworld uh, tend to repeat is that Westworld exposes your true self and who you really are. And I think that's kind of a really interesting proposal because it's it's often depicted in in Westworld that the people that interact with that world are very violent and. Uh, kind of indulge their animalistic tendencies and things like that. But I did see, like Aaron said, I think there's a huge disconnect between those two things. I think when we talked about Westworld as a class, um, something something that I thought was very interesting was how we all seem to empathize more with the hosts of that world rather than the people, the actual people interacting with those worlds. And I feel like universally as a viewer, you you tend to kind of look at those actions and those violent tendencies and kind of shy away from them just
0: to clarify hosts are the human invented ai robots guests are the humans and we i think as a class kind of consented to the idea that in our view as humans we sympathized more with the ai than the very violent humans who seem to be exploiting them
2: yeah and i think the the Westworld's discussion around um, the ethics of AI and what it means to be human in that way, I think is very, very interesting. And AI as it's coming out today is starting to become a very, very powerful kind of entity that we're not really sure how we can control it and uh, what kind of ethics surround the use of AI. The questions that Westworld brought up about what defines a human and could an AI technology be potentially considered human And how actually causing us to empathize with AI instead of actual humans. I think I think it's a very, very interesting kind of discussion that I I think needs to happen more as we develop AI in the future. Jeff, what do you think? How
0: would you approach this question from the perspective of world-building ethics?
2: Yeah,
3: so this was a very interesting question for me, because like when we go through these processes to like kind of build like 3D models of worlds, we have all these different aids, like complex uh, physics simulations to kind of replicate our real world in the virtual world. But there's also different choices. Like you could you could choose not to put certain things in these virtual worlds. And I think that's where kind of like the disconnect between physical space and virtual space, they, they kind of, that's where it lives. Because in virtual space, to a certain extent, there are no consequences. Like we cannot be bound by gravity or physical like mass and light. We can choose like stylistically to represent this differently. And like kind of what Aaron was saying, the violence in video games can sometimes be uh, drastically dramatized from what, what happens in real life. And this is also not only happens in that, but also in film. I was recently watching a YouTube video on like Quentin Tarantino in his films, how he kind of exaggerates when someone gets shot, like blood kind of splats everywhere in real life that wouldn't actually happen. And the the ethical question when these like when we start merging our physical world into the virtual space, I don't know how we as humans will negotiate this kind of like hopping back and forth. I know, right now we use like VR in architecture, it's very limited. Like We can't physically move through the space. We can see it from one point of view, which limits our movement through it. I mean, once that technology gets there where we can totally live in it, I don't know, some of us might choose never, never to come back.
0: I want to press you on this. I want to actually ask you about how some of these very fundamental changes in the way that virtual reality presents reality to us. Um, physical changes, changes that are perspectival might result in actual ethical changes. What, what are you thinking of when you see those changes that happen in virtual world perspective and presentation? What are you thinking might be the
3: ethical consequences? Hmm. So I guess throughout my own experience, it's always felt very uh, odd to me when, whenever we're asked to design in a very foreign place. Like sometimes we're given briefs where we have to design in like Europe or Japan, and it's very odd. I, I can do as much research as I can, but I still don't have kind of the, the feeling of the people who are actually there. like what are their actual concerns? And to a certain extent, I don't think this can be kind of communicated via the Internet. You kind of have to have these well well, they can be like via Zoom, but you have to have these one-on-one conversations with the actual people there. And I don't think you can look that up or find it anywhere online.
0: Uh, Of course, we can't talk about virtual reality right now without nodding, at least to the fact that most of our interactions with one another are virtual. Because right now, we're recording in the middle of June 2020, and we are in the middle of a pandemic. We've been socially distancing now for over three months, with many of us sheltering in place not seeing one another except by virtual means. In fact, three of us have never met in person. The conversation is happening right now over virtual space and as did our entire class over the quarter. How did you guys experience that shift to online learning and to virtual social interactions?
1: You know, like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was definitely hard switching to online learning. I mean, the whole reason why I I picked Cal Poly is for they're learn by doing motto. And I really missed doing research in the lab. Um, outside of research, I also missed the hands-on learning that comes with the like lab sections of my science classes. Um, I did take an immunology class this quarter. And something that I applaud the professor for doing is that she actually sent us some lab supplies. So we were able to do uh, two or three labs from home, which I really enjoyed. But As far as keeping up with friends or family, scheduling Zoom calls was super important to me. You know, I found ways to celebrate a friend's 21st birthday. I was able to watch my younger sister's vocal performance and, you know, in general just became a useful tool for staying connected while
2: apart. I think Aaron really hit the nail on the head with the difficulties around virtual instruction versus in-person. One of the main kind of grievances that I've heard that I I agree with is uh, when you're at home, just sitting in front of your computer all day, taking classes, it all kind of blends together into this one giant, insurmountable mountain of classwork and lectures and stress. And I I definitely felt a little bit of that as well. But I I will say, I, I think The use of Zoom and all sorts of other um, video conferencing things have made this experience not quite as bad as I would have thought um, initially. I think the ability to connect with each other in virtual spaces has been essential, Um, and I think the technology that allows us to do that um, is, is very impressive. I will say an interesting example was I am pretty heavily involved with the computer engineering program at Cal Poly. And I helped put together our banquet this quarter for the CPE department. And we ended up using the software called Verbella and it allowed us to kind of put virtual avatars into a virtual space. Um, And it wasn't very extensive or anything like that, but it had distance-based audio so that smaller groups could get together and talk, and then you could move around, find other people to talk to. And it really, I I was surprised at how well it worked. It, It actually made the banquet experience so much better than I could have imagined it being on Zoom. And it was, it was actually very, very cool to be able to kind of walk up to one of my professors uh, in a virtual space and just strike up a conversation. That was a very, very interesting experience, and I think it kind of um, highlights uh, what our technology is capable of um, in this moment.
3: To kind of add to Nick's experience, um, throughout this quarter, our, our department kind of heavily used this software or this application on concept board. Which is kind of like a more of a, a visual, uh, more of like a graphic kind of like you post images and you kind of uh, outline or layout graphics on the board. But it was kind of interesting because you could share with other people and they would kind of physically be there through their cursor. Their cursor would kind of show up on screen and move around. And it was it was surprising how fun that was compared to Zoom because even though on Zoom, we kind of see each other's faces, but we're not moving at all. Like we may be talking and moving slightly in our chairs, but it was kind of fun because like we played like virtual tag with our cursors. What
0: ethical concerns about technology seem most pressing to you right now, especially given our moment?
1: We're obviously in the middle of a global pandemic, and I felt like there has been a lot of, you know, fear mongering and misinformation coming from the media and, you know, it's something we highlighted in class when we discussed brain dead microphone of just almo- almost making news headlines but specifically for, for clickbait. And I think the ethics on science communication in the news and as well on social media needs to be addressed to ensure that people are getting, you know, accurate information that is that does not contribute to instill panic.
3: Yeah, I agree with Aaron that kind of like this era of fake news is very hard to navigate. Like oftentimes I'm very frustrated looking on Twitter where someone makes like an outrageous claim and the initial emotional reaction is like, what the fuck or like what's happening? But then like upon closer investigation, you try and look for their sources. You try and like dive deeper into what they're claiming and you can't find anything. And it's like, is this even real? I mean I've I mean I've kind of been going through like looking on how to identify this better when you see these kind of outrageous claims made online and I don't know like I've just read some interesting articles that when things are posted up on the internet it kind of becomes a game of telephone where every time someone reposts something a little bit of that information is lost and to really kind of critically dive into these these claims or like this, this information, you gotta look for reliable sources, which is kind of hard to find in this era where so many, so much content is made for, like Aaron said, like clickbait for views, for monetary like value.
2: Yeah, uh, to build on that just a little bit more. I think the current situation with the pandemic really exacerbates those issues around the misinformation and, and anybody and everybody having a platform to speak, because so much of what we're experiencing right now is ultimately only through what we see online and what we experience when talking to other people and the limited interactions that we have, that I think there's a lot of people, especially in the United States, who are seeing information and receiving information, uh, which ca- which is causing them to believe things um, about the pandemic and about coronavirus that aren't necessarily true. Especially, I mean, some of my family that I've talked to recently seem to kind of be caught in those feedback circles that kind of don't really get them the true uh, information and facts that they should be getting. I want
0: to follow up on that. You mentioned Twitter, I think, Jeff. And Earlier we were talking about Facebook, two of the major companies and media outlets that seem to bear an enormous amount of responsibility for for allowing this telephone game, as you put it, to really develop at an alarming rate of misinformation. What are companies, Facebook and Twitter are the two I mentioned, but I'm speaking more broadly here, doing or not doing that's contributing to these ethical issues? And what could they do? to address these issues that they're not doing. What role do you think that other organizations, nonprofits or the government or local or state or federal governments might play? What, what role should universities be playing
3: in this moment? I'm thinking back to a lot of the things that Facebook and Twitter have done recently, the newsworthy things like Twitter kind of fact checking the president and the president kind of getting mad at him. And then also Mark Zuckerberg is kind of taking the neutral stance but he's also seems to be backstepping now it's very interesting that these kind of when i think about spaces like twitter and facebook they seem referencing back to kind of like what we were talking about on a facebook article earlier this quarter they are spaces even though they might not be physical but these spaces come with their own rule set and Twitter and Facebook are the entities that kind of own all the interaction or govern all the interaction on these physical sites. So it seems seems like they should take that responsibility to kind of govern those actions, not only with misinformation, but other kind of criminal activity. And it, it just seems weird that there have been claims that President Trump has consistently violated these general terms of Of agreement on Facebook but he's still allowed to post and have his profile on there but kind of Twitter seems to be striking back now and I think people are noticing and enjoying that because I I recently read that Mark Zuckerberg is starting to starting to take steps to censor the president I'm not quite sure I haven't like into this I just read a headline but it, it it seems like he's following suit with what Twitter's doing.
2: To build on that, I, I think there is a, a huge responsibility that's been placed on these social media companies to limit the spread of misinformation and re- regulate uh, the thoughts and feelings that are being expressed on their platforms. But it, it's it's such a huge position of power to control our our conversation. And it's, it's very interesting to see where they might draw the line. I know um, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook in particular have been almost infamous for um, not regulating anything that goes on in their site for the most part. And that's purely out of fear that they don't want to push their own political agendas, I think. Which I think is a huge—it's very interesting challenge for those companies to, to take on because they have the ability to nearly almost limit our free speech on their platforms, and they—they they are going to have to be careful to not infringe on some of the basic rights that uh, we're supposed to have as humans.
1: Yeah, I just kind of wanted to echo what Nick was saying. Is I, I think it's really it's a really tricky situation that they're in. Freedom of speech is just so important. And so it it brings in questions of, of censorship and are you infringing on that? Right. And, you know, in all honesty, I'm not really sure where that line is, but it's definitely something that's interesting to think about.
0: I have a follow up question for you, which is that, you know, we've just talked about some major ethical considerations at these companies. And I'm sure that you might also have come to mind similar ethical considerations and concerns at places that you know, offer a lot of opportunities, particularly for young, new graduates hoping to make a name in tech and some money in tech at places like Amazon or Google or Facebook or Twitter or Yelp, some of these huge giants that can pay pretty well and offer a lot of prestige. With some of the ethical concerns that you have, would you take that job if it were offered to you? And if if so, why? If not, why not?
1: I, I personally wouldn't take that job. Simply be, I mean, they'd have to offer me a lot of money just because I am so, so passionate about biotechnology and that's not really you know the the potential job they would offer me is just not very relevant so they'd have to give me enough money basically to start my own uh you know start my own company in in biotech but
0: we'll say that it were so for example google has an entire medical google operation say that it were relevant but you had ethical concerns about the company would you join what's your number if you would
1: I don't know what my number would be. It definitely is very interesting to think of. It's something I haven't really thought about, or nobody's really posed the question to me before. Um, Just because it'd be really hard to pass up, simply because it's it's a great company with a lot of resources, and on top of that, you know, I I'm just I would be just starting my career. Uh, I'm looking to go to grad school, and so financially that would help a lot with that. I really don't know if i I would take it or not, but my my guess would be I would probably take it and hopefully try to change it for the better if I am concerned with ethics going on there. I wouldn't just blindly follow I guess I'd probably try to change it
0: jeff what what's your answer to Twitter when Twitter offers you a job?
3: yeah, to kind of reiterate what Aaron was saying like i I too am kind of deeply whenever i look at a, a perspective like job i i kind of look into their values and see how i as a person and my values would fit into this com- these companies and i am not sure how how i would fit into like places like twitter or amazon and especially if they have a different division because those the ethics of those divisions might not might not completely mirror the the ethics of the larger kind of global Amazon. But I think I would do the same thing as Aaron. I would really look into kind of what their values are as a company. And if I have the, the power to change it, if I'm concerned with it, or if I don't feel like that, I would look for a different opportunity.
0: Nick, what if Facebook offered you an ethical hacker job?
2: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question for me because I actually last summer took an internship with Chevron, which is seen by a lot of people as uh, an objectively questionable company just because um, they're kind of an oil company. And I obviously took the internship. Um, and even though my role was on their application security team and I wasn't like actually digging oil out of the ground or anything. It is something I thought a lot about. And since I was only there for three months, I didn't really think too much about kind of the ethical implications of the work that I might be doing. But it it really got me thinking about how much I value um, kind of the implications of the work I'm doing. I do think in Chevron's case, there was definitely a little bit of brainwashing going on. um, But I think one of their interesting arguments is that right now oil is a necessary evil and that if oil companies stop doing what they're doing, um, then the whole economy would shut down. Um, And I, I went, Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I don't feel so bad anymore, (laughs) which I looking back on it is a really interesting perspective because it shows me a little bit about how, um, in more more ethically questionable scenarios how easily you might be convinced um, to kind of take that position and do, do a job that you might normally object to. I think moving forward I'm definitely going to think about those things more and I definitely am not interested in pursuing a full-time position at Chevron when I graduate partially because of those reasons. Um, so I, I think for me I definitely need to make sure that what I'm doing is ethically sound, but I will say that my personal career development in some cases may supersede that obligation, I'm simply in the interest of maybe staying there for a couple of years and using it as a launching pad for something else. And it, I something that I've heard repeated recently I'm not sure why is the idea of well if i don't do it somebody else will somebody else will take that position and do it even if i refuse to uh which i think is a really interesting kind of point of view on that sort of thing i'm not sure if i necessarily agree with it and i think it's definitely the wrong attitude to have but the fact that there's some truth to that really undermines um anybody's will to kind of do the right thing in a lot of situations, I think.
0: I want to switch gears here, pull you back from your future aspirations to your past. And now that the course is over, my grade rosters are in. We're in that nice, sweet spot where you can say whatever you want with the grading behind you and the summer in front of you and no fear of any uh, foul play as a result of saying something that you might otherwise have reservations about were you to think that you might still get graded. I'd love to hear from you what you got out of the course and how you might apply our thinking and our conversations about ethics and tech into your future. Jeff, let's start with you.
3: A lot of what I've got out of this course is kind of reframing my thinking towards human or a humanist perspective. I know science fiction kind of originally kind of captures my attention because it imagines these like fantastic worlds with these new technologies. And every time like Samsung or Apple or something comes out with a new kind of wearable or phone technology, it's like very interesting and it engages me, but I've started to kind of shift perspectives into kind of what's behind the motivations of these companies and these products And if they really embody kind of values, not only just for me, but also for for, um, like other people like my family or my friends. But that kind of perspective shift has kind of been really fundamental to my thinking about how I how I carry myself through life.
0: How about you, Nick? I know you're heading into cybersecurity specifically doing penetration testing for tech companies what's your takeaway from the quarter
2: yeah my my experience in the class has definitely brought a lot of um, ethical questions and concerns to the forefront of my mind I'll admit that kind of maybe before I took the class uh, ethics I may have harbored a little bit of the attitude um, that I expressed as an issue earlier. Uh, where ethics is just something that I have to do. It's an additional class that I have to take and I never really care too much for it. Um, but but taking this class really highlighted how important those issues can be and how significant the role of technologists is in today's world, where the things that technologists create and develop have the potential to completely change the our social landscape and maybe even uh, our perception of reality as it is. So it's really moving forward. Uh, my concerns for security uh, on the internet and things like that, this class really reinforced a lot of my ideas I had around security and privacy and how important those things can be uh, moving forward uh, for individuals. And I'll I'll definitely say that um, the class was very, important to me and how i'm I'll move forward with my ideals on ethics.
0: Erin, how might you apply your thinking and conversations about the ethics of tech into your future in biotech?
1: Yeah, just to start off though, i feel as though i got a lot out of the course just cuz it allowed me to reflect on some issues that i otherwise probably would not have thought too deeply about and the amount of writing that we did allowed me to really articulate my thoughts rather than just Thinking about it on my own. But kind of like you mentioned, the, the part of the class that felt most relevant to my studies in biotech was certainly our unit on biomedical ethics. You know, my, my research in regenerative medicine has inspired me to use biotech as a way to develop new treatments and cure for many diseases. And something we questioned in class was whether or not this technology can be viewed as treating death. You know, if our own biology is failing us, How far can tech step in? Um, Frankly, I'm not sure I have the answer to this question, even though I've reflected on it during your class. But what I do know is that these are questions that I will keep in mind in my future career. What excites me about my research is, of course, the applications of it. And I hope that any research I do will one day contribute to helping others. I just want to be able to do so ethically.
0: You know, it's interesting, you're talking here about the real-world applications, but of course, the backbone of our class was fiction. And I decided to teach this course on ethical technology with a strong core in fiction, making the case to you over the quarter that science fiction provides a special insight into technological production, since fictional imaginings have both inspired the design and production of actual technological products... And since they also offer a template for how we might think about and respond to technological innovations once they're realized is our actual realities. And thus they, that these science fictions provide us a model of how we might think about our reception and responses to technological innovation once they come into being. But I'm a literary scholar, so I'm probably a little bit biased. What do you think about fiction's relationship to ethical technology, especially after this class, what do you view as fiction's role in helping us understand both technological culture and production and the ethical hazards that emerge out of it?
1: I, I definitely think there's a connection between fiction and technology. My, my dad really likes science fiction. And so uh, Jurassic Park and Gattaca are both movies. He showed me that, and they, they both raise questions on genetic engineering so even before I started doing research in the biotech field or really even cultivated a huge uh, career interest in that field, fiction definitely played a role in my ethical thinking. After this class, I feel like kind of what you said, fiction can be used almost as a sandbox in creating a potential outcome of a given technology. It's It kind of establishes a platform to start thinking about and discussing the ethics of something we don't have yet. So I think it can be I think it could have a really powerful role in, in that respect.
0: Jeff, I know you have a particular interest in science
3: fiction and world
0: building. What do you think?
3: I have similar thoughts to Aaron on this and how uh, particularly I grew up watching those same movies like Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, Gattaca. And it's kind of interesting how reality kind of takes these uh, fictional imaginings from these stories of science fiction. And it's they try to make that a reality. We are kind of inspired by these myths that we tell ourselves, and we want to uh, make these into reality. But I think there is also kind of uh, an interesting disconnect. Often I would see that these pieces of science fiction as kind of like warnings to possible uh, dystopic futures, but it also seems interesting that Despite these kind of ethical questions that are raised, some in the tech community pursue it anyway. If you could assign
0: one fiction to a class, what would it be? And what would you want them to take away
2: from it in the context of ethics and tech? I think the kind of the feedback loop between technologies emerging and science, science fiction writers uh, predicting what may, might happen next and then the actual technologists taking inspiration from those things. Um, is a very real thing that, that we've seen over the course of the quarter. Something that I think is very interesting about science fiction is in our society in general is I think it provides us a very, very accessible kind of starting point for a lot of ethical conversation to take place. I'm pretty sure without the existence of Black Mirror, a lot of people my age would probably never even think about a lot of the implications that some of our modern technologies have. Um, and I think the responsibility almost that science fiction has to inspire these questions and conversations not only among technologists and humanists but around everybody in our society. I think it, it creates a very very accessible um, platform uh, to kind of start formulating those ideas um, for an every every man perspective.
1: Like I mentioned before, I, I think, you know, Gattaca is a movie about genetic engineering technology. I would, I would definitely assign. My hope would be that others would reflect a little bit more on transhumanism, uh, which is the concept that, the, that humanity can evolve beyond its current physical or mental limitations through the means of, of science and technology. And it's something that we talked about
3: in, in class as well. I would assign Jurassic Park as a really good topic on science fiction and ethical technology i just think that really pertains to kind of like the feedback loop between fiction and technology
1: just to quickly add on to what jeff was saying is what i really wanted to what i want to kind of further highlight is in the book jurassic park he really emphasizes kind of what the unintended consequences of genetic engineering technology can lead to and it's hard it's harder to predict the outcome of it than we may perceive and i i also think that um it'd be a really interesting discussion to talk about in class
2: i'm tempted to say wally i think wally was is a very it speaks volumes about um our current technological environment around cell phones and constant interaction with uh, the internet and cell phones and things like that um and where these kinds of technologies might eventually lead, as well as bringing up those questions about uh, climate change and global warming, and the ethical considerations that we have to deal with in this moment. I remember when I was writing a little bit about Wally in our journals, I didn't realize I looked it up that Wally was came out in 2008, which was right around the time that I think that the iPhone 4 came out, which I remember as being kind of the moment that self-like smartphones kind of came to the forefront. Of our, of our world. So I think, I think Wally is very kind of prophetic in a way of telling us, um, warning us where these technologies might lead. And I think it's very pertinent to kind of the modern discussion around ethics and technology.
0: You know, over the quarter, we talked a lot about the significance of building diversity and equity in tech. And each of you are envisioning going into a radically different field, but all of those fields will involve technological production of some sort. What do you think the stakes are for your field in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion? And and why are these things in your view important? What happens when we don't have them?
1: I mean, I as someone who is, you know, a mixed-race female, I obviously think about these concepts and they're very, very important to me. What I find very inspiring about my field of biotech is the fact that I can help develop something that will help others and make a difference. But for me, a major concern I have relates to the cost of a specific treatment or medication. For me, I want any sort of treatment or cure or vaccine that I develop to be able to reach and benefit as many people as possible, you know, whoever whoever needs it. So my concern lies in the fact that something I can develop may be distributed unequally. You know, it could potentially be a very, very expensive form of treatment. You know, I want others to benefit from my work, regardless of their socioeconomic status, race, gender, etc. You know, and then on top of that, a huge thing that I've learned from engaging in laboratory research is how important collaboration is. And science is something that builds on itself. And so I think the entire field benefits from having a diverse group of people that can give their insight onto a problem you know, it's absolutely critical to be able to look at a problem from many different angles.
0: There's a very instructive story about a particular building on MIT's campus. And out of that building, for some reason, has has come more innovations and insights and collaborations and breakthroughs than pretty much any other building. And there was a study as to why that building had become the locus for so much innovation, And it turned out that that one explanation, at least, points to the fact that that building was a kind of older building. It was kind of decrepit. And because it was so kind of decrepit, people were willing to and didn't think that much about knocking down walls. And people were putting together all sorts of collaborations because it was kind of a mishmash of different departments that were put together in that environment that that building had a particular focus on diversity of thought and diversity of background and race and economic status. And out of that came some of the most important contributions um, that MIT developed. And I think it's really instructive in terms of you know, what diversity of perspective and diversity of background uh, can, can produce, that it is not just a moral good in and of itself, which of course it is, but it is also incredibly important to innovation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't find that to be surprising at all. Like I mentioned, I think diversity of thought is, is huge. I, I really think that we learn so much from our differences and I, I think it's hard to progress if we don't learn and grow in that way.
2: Yeah, when when I think about diversity in tech specifically, I always think more about Kind of the point that you brought up at the the very beginning of the quarter, uh, Professor Donig, where it's the the people that are designing and creating the technologies, create them for themselves, right? And that the people creating the technologies aren't diverse and they don't represent the actual population, then those technologies will end up coming out to benefit the people that design them instead of everybody, and there's, there's tons of examples of this happening in tech, uh, facial recognition not working on individuals who aren't light-skinned. And um, your example of the, uh, the pilot's chair being built for a man instead of a woman, I think those are very powerful examples of why diversity is so essential in tech um, and in engineering spaces. And it, it really, I think, provides a perspective that a lot of people might be lacking to inform them on the importance of tech.
3: I kind of find it interesting that you said that this is like kind of an old and decrepit building where kind of like we didn't have those kind of maybe overbearing rules and regulations like keep the walls clean and like to hold up and that kind of like was the starting point for this kind of ability to kind of cooperate and work and make like their space better. I think that's kind of like a maybe use as like kind of a metaphor for how we're what's happening today we kind of seem at such a low point in our our nation and globally too maybe this kind of we can bound together and rebuild during this time it kind of makes me optimistic in these kind of dark times i want to broaden this question
0: now to ask you again about your specific fields And the particular skills you think that workers need to do ethical work in them. What knowledge, skills, background, and understanding should an ethical tech worker in your field have? If you were hiring in that field, what would you look for in terms of training for somebody who's coming to work for you?
3: Architecture is typically white male dominated. And if I were in the position of hiring someone, I would want them to have knowledge not just of what they design, but how that design not only affects the people inside them, but the people around them, and how that, how even though we're building essentially a container for someone to live, it's not uh, inside a vacuum. It participates in the environment, not only ecologically but socially culturally from the smallest house on a neighborhood block to the largest office building with uh, millions of people inside i would want them to have that kind of knowledge in that sincere thoughtfulness and care about the individual
1: on the more individual scale i would want an individual to have what, in my experience, Cal Poly provides an an education on ethical experimentation and how to conduct yourself ethically as a researcher. But on the broader level, I think it's important to think about the ethics and the application of the technology. I would want somebody to keep in mind and really truly think about both the intended and unintended consequences of this technology think about the ethical way to implement new advancements in technology. And then kind of going back to some of what I talked about before is like how thinking about how far technology can intervene with biology. I think thinking about this and, and really, really reflecting on this is something I would want uh, my fellow researchers to have done.
2: For cybersecurity in, in, in particular, it's, it's an interesting field because the interest in cybersecurity, you kind of need an interest in ethics and privacy in the first place in order to even consider going into that field. I think for aspiring cybersecurity professional, it's it's incredibly important for that understanding of the necessity of privacy. And the necessity of diversity and technology and why those things are so important and why we need to work so hard to protect those things i remember a few years ago i was of the attitude that my data privacy didn't really matter and that if if google wanted to track my location then why why would i care uh, i don't have anything to hide But as I became more interested in cybersecurity, I I came to understand just how important that data can be and how in the wrong hands, that kind of data can be used to essentially ruin my life. So I think it's incredibly important for uh, cybersecurity professionals to have that understanding and understand the importance of the work that they do and why it's important that those jobs are done right.
0: One last question. I ask this to almost everyone I interview, and I'll be especially interested in your answers, since you represent the next generation of workers, leaders, and thinkers. We read a lot in our current moment about this as a moment of dystopia, and we've actually read a lot about dystopias this quarter, especially dystopian futures that rise out of idealistic endeavors aimed toward utopias. When I planned this quarter, when I planned for us to read about dystopias, I was not expecting us to be living what could conceivably be described as a dystopia. At this moment, are you optimistic? Or do you think that we're heading toward the kind of dystopian future that's often pictured in science fiction?
3: I'll start this off. I am personally very optimistic, even though we're, we're all upset about how we built up our old ways. And I don't think we can ever go back to this kind of previous idea of normal. I think we have like a really special opportunity to rebuild our our kind of new normal and refocus our energy, like specifically kind of like within the Black Lives Matter movement, we're kind of focused on police brutality and social justice. And I know several states or several cities have disbanded their police department. I don't know, quite sure how I feel about this move. I don't know if it's symbolic or if it's actual a step in the right direction. I can't say now, but just the fact that everyone is upset with these issues and these issues are coming to the forefront on the news, it's kind of, it brings hope that things can be rebuilt in a better way.
1: Yeah, adding on to what Jeff said, I'm also pretty optimistic, just because I don't think people want what is pictured in science fiction. You know, obviously nobody wants to live in a dystopia. So I'm optimistic that we're heading away from that, because I do think that people are very, very mindful of that. And I think a lot of my classmates who are also doing research and are concerned with implementing new advancements correctly and ethically. And then I think as college students, we feel empowered, or at the very least I do, to make change for the better, as Jeff was pointing out.
2: Yeah, like Jeff and Aaron, I'm also very optimistic about kind of this the state of uh, ethics and technology and us heading towards a t- not heading towards a dystopia I, I think my my main hope lies in the basic the human spirit in a way I, I think we have a tendency to be decent towards one another and to be understanding and i think the nature of our nature to do good is stronger than our nature to to do bad and i i think that's kind of what the overarching idea of why we I don't think we're headed towards a dystopia. I think in the stories that we've we've read in nineteen eighty four and Brave New World also, both very horrible dystopian societies, there are characters in those stories who don't fit with the dystopia and that they challenge the the norm and and what what seems to be presented to them. And I think I don't think that those characters are the exception, especially in the way that our world works. And that's, I think, more of us identify with those characters than the ones that find themselves caught up in that dystopian society and they're helpless to stop it. Yeah, that's that's why I would say I think I'm I'm very optimistic about where we're headed.
0: Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you,